in a more inflationary world, in a more chaotic energy transition with more chaotic geopolitics, we're going to see shorter, more volatile business cycles. That's Karen Harris, the managing director of Bain's Macro Trends Group. The last time we had Karen on dry powder in early September, she unpacked a remarkable convergence of macro risks to the global economy. If you haven't heard those episodes, I highly recommend you click on the links in the episode notes. And if you have heard those episodes, you're about to get a timely update. Karen has just returned from DeVos, where attendees were coming to grips with a less globalized, less predictable, and more fractured global economy. The consensus shifted towards soft landing. We heard it behind closed doors, we heard it out in the open, and that's certainly possible. I just think it would be a mistake to anchor around a specific scenario given the complexity of the situation. Today on the show, Karen and I will discuss our key takeaways from DeVos and how private equity investors are taking the long view on economic uncertainty and the expanding role of government policy in the marketplace. I'm Hugh MacArthur, Chairman of Bain's Global Private Equity Practice, and this is Dry Powder. Karen, it is terrific to see you again. I know you've been at DeVos recently, and I think this year's conference was pretty different from previous years. Would you say that? And I mean that both in terms of the content as well as just the tone of the conference. I think the biggest difference that I saw was the first time I went, it was 2018 or 2019, the tone was towards global cooperation Nobody was having that conversation this year. The topic itself was cooperation in a fragmented world. And from Bain and our macro trends group, we've been talking about this phenomenon of post-globalization now for nearly a decade, and we're really seeing it come to fruition. There are certainly business leaders who will look at the trade data and say, nothing's actually changed at a top line level. But what we're seeing below that thatch layer is is a few things. One is meaningful capital investments in shifting supply chains closer to end markets. And the second is, yes, that top line trade is still moving, but we're not seeing in that data the regionalized shift. And so the inertia was towards globalization even a few years ago. And this year, it's definitely towards, okay, how are these pieces going to settle out in this somewhat chaotic and definitely fragmented transition? Did you hear anything yourself that altered your personal opinion or outlook on the global economy while you attended DeVos this year? The most interesting contrast was before we left, the headlines were a gloomy outlook in DeVos. But As we started having conversations with our clients and business leaders behind closed doors, the consistent thread was, yes, we hear that things are not great in the market, but our business is still doing fine in many businesses. Now, that wasn't necessarily true in a few sectors, but it was more than a silver lining. It was you know, a giant silver road plowing through the middle of what was supposed to be gloomy. And I think that is understandable. Though we had inflation that put a lot of pressure on households, in most markets, wages did not keep up with inflation. 
Right. We saw the equities stayed reasonably steady in many sectors. It wasn't a lot of fun if you were a crypto company or in some parts of tech, but businesses haven't yet felt the full impact of rising rates because they've been able to preserve margins and preserve revenue in many cases. And if you're in financial services, having positive spreads for the first time for many banks and parts of the world was also a tailwind. And so it doesn't surprise me that we heard more of that optimism behind closed doors, but it was a marked contrast. So there was kind of a silver lining for the conference, but is it more than that? Is it a silver exhale for the global economy? How has your assessment evolved since you were on this show last September? So when we last spoke, we were talking about scenarios and a planning corridor that looked something like a normal recession to the potential for something worse. I think that the warm winter in Europe, the gas storage situation, the relief of energy prices, that has created, as you put it so well, an exhale. My only caution, and I risk sounding like a typical grumpy economist, and I'm even worse because I'm not only an economist, but I'm an economist who went to law school. But with even with that outlook, I would put in a note of caution to not coalesce around a single soft landing scenario. That is the central scenario we heard the most often from business leaders. It's certainly a possibility, but it is premature to anchor around that. And what you don't want to find is in the back half of this year to say, we are not in the liquidity position we should have been in because we decided everything was fine, or to miss opportunities to make acquisitions of assets or make bolder moves because we assumed everything would be sort of incremental from here rather than more disruptive. Right. Now, last fall when we spoke, we talked about a plethora of macro risks, you know, one thing after another, whether it was war in Europe or geopolitical instability with trade with China or inflation or interest rates or worries over different job sectors and different parts of the global economy. I mean, there was just the list was seemingly endless. A couple of questions are on my mind to get an update on your thinking there. One is, have any of those risks ameliorated in your view? And secondly, do we have things to add to the list uh, as we move through this winter? I think that we will continue to see the same challenges around energy. We have just taken a major player out of the market for Europe in Russian oil and Russian gas, not for Asia, where Russia is building a gas pipeline that will help them sell eastward rather than westward. The volatility is part of this transformation to a new multipolar world and the legacy institutions not being fit for purpose. We need to reconsider those. I think the biggest mistake that leaders could make, even if we have a soft landing, is misunderstanding where we land. It will not be open globalization. It will not be U.S. hegemony, a perpetually dominant U.S. dollar as the single reserve currency. This isn't necessarily negative. If we think about the U.S. dominance in capital markets, low interest rates created 
huge growth in wealth inequality in the United States, almost destabilizing. So this is an opportunity to correct some of that direction. And so I do think it's less the specific list of things that can go wrong. There are lots of global risk reports that read like the Old Testament of all of the awful things that could happen. But really, it's more focused on how is your business oriented to survive a more volatile period. So the big thing I heard you say there is it's not the same game anymore, and therefore you need to be prepared for different rules and different economic outcomes, because you may need to pivot, even if things seem okay, it's not the old game of the past. It is a different set of rules, but I'm really excited about the investment opportunities, particularly in the United States over this next cycle. I think there's just enormous opportunity in infrastructure, in being more thoughtful about how we price in externalities. And so uh, transitions, much like adolescence, they can be painful, but having adults is nice. So we're just enduring that transition now. I don't know, Hugh, is that a sentiment you're feeling with investors or are they still waiting for all of this to fall out in a different way than I'm describing? Um, You know, I don't know. We're projecting pretty far ahead. And I think that investors are thinking that there's going to be some type of correction in the first half of 2023. That's generally speaking the quote-unquote base case. So that changes day to day. Lord knows I continue to consume media that leaves me not understanding the same kinds of things on a Wednesday that I might be thinking about on a Friday when I consume that information. But I think the industry, generally speaking, is preparing anyway for some type of correction because they continue to see, certainly in the United States, the Fed increase interest rates. We'll see what happens in Europe. And we know that while nobody, as you pointed out, jumps up and down and says, well, what we need to do here is really crush the economy to get inflation under control. That's exactly what the Fed has done historically, is continue to raise interest rates until consumer demand drops, unemployment increases, and we get an environment where inflation goes down and interest rates can be then returned down to lower rates. I think that the good news for investors is that the Fed is now signaling a more dovish approach to interest rate increases, more like a quarter point versus a half point, and then people begin to wonder, okay, do we get to no increases at some point in time? How long does that take? And then may we see something at least stabilized? You know, as you well know, the investment world hates uncertainty. I've called it before on this show, and I continue to call it the U word. It is the thing that causes deal-making gears to grind and eventually stop. Once we get stability, wherever it is, then investors can plan for a more certain outcome. And when you're making bets in the private equity world that take five to seven to eight years to pan out, certainty is a pretty pretty important thing. And there are already risks in any endeavor and any investment that people are underwriting. So having some of that certainty, at least in some of the major macro levers, is very vitally important. And so we're still in that environment right now of not really feeling like investors know where the world is going, but being hopeful that any type of recession would be mild. And, and that leads me to my my next question for you, which is, are there any specific macro risks at this point that you think, boy, we really have to keep an eye on this during the next 12 months? What you just said is is so important. Those who believe we're going to avoid a recession I think implicit in many of their beliefs is a view that the Fed is going to back away from rising rates if we see a wobble in the economy. And 
I believe that the U.S. Fed is committed to getting down to that 2% target. They might have had room to maneuver and say 3% makes more sense. But the problem with that three is one, 4% is a point at which consumers really palpably feel the impact of inflation. And the second is, let's be realistic, institutions lost an enormous amount of credibility through COVID, through inconsistent policy, through policies that felt too onerous for some, too light for others. One could argue that there was no pleasing even a majority, but regardless, they don't have the credibility to say, we have considered the data and we are changing our target to 3% and still not have discussions about, well, what does the Fed know? Do we need an independent central bank? Should we be reconsidering legislation? And so I think on the back of Powell is almost a forced position to hit that 2%. And that may break something, right? When the Fed raises rates, something generally breaks. It could be domestic, it could be international. And so I do think that the path you described is pretty sensible. So let's assume we're going to have a downturn of some kind, probably an official recession. As we discussed last fall, the risks of a miscalculation and contagion are the ones that we still keep on the table. And so again, think about your liquidity positions. What would it look like if there were a loss of credit in the type we saw in 2008? And where would you want to be? Do you have the right number of lifeboats in case you're not just on a cruise, but you're on the Titanic. Right. So so what I hear you saying is it's fine to prepare scenarios for what we'll quote unquote call an ordinary recession. And that's what a lot of investors are obviously doing. But you have to be prepared for that catalytic event, that Lehman Brothers event, particularly in a world that is less global, more multipolar. Let's talk a little bit more about the implications of that realignment. We're doing scenario planning here. We're saying, okay, we could have black swan events. I also need to prepare for an ordinary recession. What other things do I need to be worried about as an investor? I think one of the most important overarching trends, and you and I have had this discussion, Hugh, for years, is the changing role of the state, the government, and the market. When we talked a few years ago with clients, we would note that increasingly investors and companies need to treat the state like a limited partner more than a regulator. And that for a long time, a lot of businesses either collaborated or deflected regulators. And that's a very different relationship. I was in a Chatham House discussion, and I won't say the topic, but it was about regulations that would have a big footprint. And the moderator of the discussion said, well, what about market distortions? And the panelists said, no one cares about market distortions. And that just, to me, really encapsulated, like, okay, we're at the end of the Reagan-Thatcher era here, people. Nobody is having a discussion. Well, if we step into the market, that will change it, and we don't want to do that. We let the quote-unquote free market manage itself. In this new multipolar world, 
where the government and the second largest economy are one. The idea that that there is some sort of distinct market that exists out in nature has been, I think, put to the side. And so thinking as investors about, okay, where are the rules changing? Where are we going to have a tailwind from the state, the Texas-Mexico corridor, land-based transportation, greater infrastructure, all of those are dead obvious areas that will have real upside in North America in that sort of changing environment. Of course, that doesn't make every asset a winner, but certainly it's a nice place to start looking. Kind of a scary thought, though, isn't it? I mean, the degree to which the state could become an LP, not only does it change markets, but the other thing it injects, you know, you know, that word uncertainty that I, I tend to worry about a little bit is that the state can change its mind on a lot of these decisions, too. And when you have open and free markets, it's the market forces that determine what happened. And to some extent, investors have become very comfortable over the last several decades analyzing those market forces and what's likely to happen, what's rational, what might happen on emotion. But if the state suddenly decides I'm going to turn left and then a few years later, nope, that was a mistake. I'm now going to turn right and do something different. That can really rewrite the rules of the game kind of midstream. And so what you're describing to me suggests that investors really need to pay a lot more attention to what government policy could be and what changes in those policies are really possible and how that might inflect or impair the value of an investment and therefore what might you need to be prepared to do as an investor if government policy changes. The danger in a polarized system, the danger is the rhetoric lurches. The counterbalance to that is the ability of legislatures to actually move policy is severely encumbered by the fact that if one person gets the flu or just decides not to vote, you end up with a much slower process. So I I don't know that there's that much agility in government, but your point is really important. When you look at government policy, where are the consistent consensus threads? One is certainly around China in the United States, and that that is a rivalrous relationship. If you look at what the Biden administration done, it's kept the Trump era legislation and added to it rather than unwinding from it. But where else are we seeing consensus? We're seeing Japan invest now nuclear and has made a declaration of of putting hundreds of millions of dollars into that sector. And I think Japan as an exporter of nuclear power capabilities and engineering would be a great advancement for the world. And so there are, I think, real bright spots that will last through this next investment cycle that are really interesting to uncover. You know, the implications of what I hear you saying, Karen, are that we're going to continue to see an acceleration of innovation and experimentation in private asset classes and private investment. I remember a time 20 years ago when investing in software companies was considered extremely avant-garde and extremely dangerous. And of course, now the software sector is the single largest sector for buyouts in the world. And when I think about private investors moving into things like Web3 technologies or getting permanent capital by buying insurance companies or pushing to access retail investors through different technologies and different wealth management channels or uh, infrastructure investors moving from buying and owning ports into more value-added infrastructure activities like digital infrastructure and wireless and, and the future of the internet and building that 
it just seems like that's accelerated in the last five to seven years. And you're telling me, if I'm understanding you correctly, that the conditions that you see evolving at a macro level are only going to encourage more of that type of experimentation in the future. To be certain, you have to understand the risks you're really taking and what you're underwriting and where the value levers really are that you need to pull to get the return for investors. But if you're looking for same old, same old in the private markets, you're probably going to be disappointed. Would you think that's fair? That's that's perfectly stated, Hugh. And I mean, you at Bain, we've been alongside these investors. When this industry was nascent, it was an innovation thanks to a changing global and economic environment and that it was a brilliant innovation. And now that's changing again. So I think it will be really exciting to see where some of our clients think about new paths and, and new ways of creating value of supporting the assets they invest in and, and generating growth over this next cycle. Well, Karen, I wanted to thank you very much again for coming by the show and it's been terrific to see you. Thanks you. It's always fun to be here. I'm Hugh MacArthur. Thank you for listening.